Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, roads and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. I really, truly believe you have to be yourself. You have to be able to be yourself in all the circumstances that you find yourself in, in the business. And so I'm a very natural sort of, uh, I have a very natural manner with people. We have open door approach in the business. Um, when I, in the very early years, I didn't believe in hierarchy. I mean, there had to be a little bit because people had to be in charge of things. But um, when we had rewards or gain share or bonus, it was the same for everybody, whatever position they were in the business. So just be fair and be yourself and unpretentious is a very key thing for me. This is Monica Linton, founder of Brindisa. Brindisa have for more than 30 years been bringing the best of Spanish food to you via their restaurants, retail shops, online shop and wholesale. Monica shares the story from the early days, back in the late 80s, when the business was founded. At that point in time, Spanish gastronomy was almost non-existent in the UK. Monica and Brindisa created a whole new category of food in the UK. They are what I would call real trailblazers. We dive into how they approach growth, leadership, development of their people, and how they're developing a culture of people love and support. Monica gives an overview of what she thinks are the key challenges for hospitality right now and how they are trying to overcome these. We talk about the power of getting the right people in the right seats when it comes to the leadership team and how this really had been a key factor for navigating the pandemic for Brindisa. Monica shares how she has grown and developed herself and show up pro every day and she has a lot of great advice during this conversation. Before you tune in, Please sign up for our weekly newsletter packed with more Maverick insights, strategies, and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. And a last thing, this conversation will make you reflect on how you build an organization and culture that people want to join and stay with. A great place to work. Enjoy. I'm super excited about today's conversation because uh, we already been talking about some of my favorite things. We talked about pulses, we talked about food from Spain, and we talked about that actually that uh, last time I was here in your restaurant was with my wife many yeah. years ago. We we're not married at that point. I just moved to London and we had this you know thing to get around Spanish food and and pulses which then have followed me the rest of life so we just had a good conversation about food in general in the industry so i'm really looking forward to dive into today's conversation so welcome to the conversation monica and the show really a pleasure to have you here and uh, and thank you to ari for making I'm it all happen yeah, yeah no well i feel very privileged to be included in your <laughs> list of very very erudite people on your podcast so thank you 
Uh, you done you done the work yourself in a way, and Ari said you need to talk with Monica. If you don't know Monica, you need to meet her and oh, you need to talk with her. That's very kind of him. Yeah. Um, so for people that you know don't know who you are and what businesses you're involved in, can you just give you know like maybe an overview and a, a bit of background how you ended up in hospitality and all the other elements of you know retail wholesale you're involved in. Well, Brindisi started out as an importing business um, in 1988, which um, is now 34 years ago or so. Um, and so we source, we've been distributing and importing products from Spain of very high caliber for 34, 30 plus years. Um, we then set up to, um, to sell to the public directly without having to go through in intermediaries. We then set up retail. So we've got shops and we've got an e-commerce platform so people can buy directly from Brindisa. And then in 2004, we set up, or I set up a separate entity, which is the Tapas Restaurant Group, which is now made up of six restaurants and a market bar here in Borough. Um, and that, we've also um, acquired a business in Spain, which is called Perelio, which is a brand, an olive brand and a pulses brand that we run out of Barcelona um, and we export from there. And that's, that's the sort of sum total of Brindisa at the moment. Um, how this all started is, is a whole other kind of question, really, because it's sort of, you know, I'm not really a traditional um, business person. I started out as a teacher. I did a degree in Spanish. Um, and as a family, you know, my parents lived and worked abroad a lot. So we were influenced by living in Africa, in Asia, and just you know moving around the world and eating different foods and meeting different cultures so that all i think must have fed into my interest in food generally and um having done a spanish degree you know i wanted to use my language i wanted to stay connected with spain i lived in spain for a fair bit after my degree um working as a teacher and then i came back to england and brought the sort of foods with me and started this business up really inspired my brother started it um, with me and um, since then it's just grown to what I've just explained it is now with all these outlets um, you know it's much bigger than it was obviously at the beginning um, and so I kind of got to a stage where you know over 35 years the world has evolved into a very different place and so you know I have built around me some very very good teams and people because you can't acquire all the skills yourself. So, um, you know, my, I suppose my, my kind of main reason to, to do this is just love of Spanish food and love of food in general, ex exchanging culture, exchanging foods, connecting with the people who make food and who make food really, really, really properly because there's craft in making good food. It's not, obviously we need fuel to survive, but, you know, within the food, uh, world, there are people who have so much skill and so much knowledge that watching how the Spanish manage, if you like, their gastronomy, how much they know, was just a total insight to you know, completely, you know, just knocked me sideways when I saw what they knew, and I wanted to bring that knowledge back to England. Um, therefore, we, you know, that's how we got the business going. 
and 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 you already alerted a bit to it but what is like the, the deep purpose because you need to have a quite you know deep purpose to actually keep a business running for 35 years there needs to be an of course there needs to be an evolving vision but um what is the, the purpose of why did you set up the business and why you created all these different parts of the business because it's it must be some kind of thing you want to achieve <laughs> yeah well I think the overriding principle is to bring Spanish food to creative cooks mm. in in Britain because um you know we bring in ingredients as well as um products like cheese and charcuterie that are not just industrial products I mean they are really really well crafted products um that you know I I wanted to learn how to differentiate from you know all these different qualities and so on and so then bringing them over to Britain for the public to uh, try out through professionals or directly with us, um, watching chefs in Britain converting some of the ingredients that we could find into really stunning dishes or not being too dogmatic about it being a Spanish menu or a Spanish dish. These were products that in their own right were of exceptional quality. So some of the pulses that we brought over, some of the cheeses we brought over um, or rice that we brought over, you know, in their own um, in their own right, they were amazing ingredients for anyone who was a really good chef and could understand what a differentiated pulse or bean might bring to a dish or really good saffron would bring to a dish. And so the professional chef and the high-class retailers were, the speciality retailers were the people who could see what I was trying to do. And I wanted people to continue well, to learn how to cook, you know, mm. our ingredients. So it's not just, you know, uh, convenience food, if you like. It was trying to challenge um, that message a little bit so that people kept... Cooking is a key skill. And learning how to buy your food is a key skill. And so for me, right at the very beginning, I wanted us to make sure that, that was quite central to what we did. Um, and But at the early days, I had to use you know chefs to help get that message through so they put some of the better ingredients if you like the top ingredients onto their menus often naming them whether it was a peculiar pepper or whether it was a hoodie on bean or a cantabrian anchovy you know the chefs respected the quality as well and they would uh, communicate that through their menus and then that helped the public and other retailers third-party retailers across the country recognize that we were innovating in areas where really the specialism hadn't been done. This was in the 90s. The specialism hadn't really kind of been recognized that much. And it's still um, still growing. The I, lo I love there's like different levels to, to your purpose as well. And you talk about that thing. Also, you want to give people a life skill of, yeah. of cooking, which, you know, the pandemic brought that, you know, that need or life skill back in right, a way. Into the forefront. that's definitely what i've observed myself and you could even see myself cooking more than i would have done normally and now it's become a very good habit yeah um, yeah, yeah and i think you're you're so right there's so many the, the the lacks that skill of actually being able to you know how know how to buy food and then cook food out of principles not from recipes you know yeah the basic how you work with food i really like that as well well, and learning to actually taste things, mm. you know, because it is very subjective quality, you know, um, of a product. And so, you know, not everyone 
takes the time to enjoy the aroma or the texture or the flavor of an ingredient or a dish it's sort of just fuel if you know what I mean so you know learning teaching that within the business learning it myself and then trying to communicate that as a you know a really exciting part of one's life you know it is quite an adventure to to learn how to appreciate ingredients um so that was a that's a big part of the yeah yeah and I guess that you never done because there's so much still to be learned. There's like you can keep it's on the universe stops. of food style continues, and that's what I why I love with it. And some of the things that make me addictive to the, the the food bit because you can never learn. And I just learned about a new uh, pulse before we started as well. <laughs> Fava yes. bean, Fava, and I was be. talking yeah. about fava beans. Yeah. Um, what what uh, what do you think that makes your business because you need to have something that consumers or customers thinks is quite unique about you to stay in business for so long what is it that that really makes you unique and that could be Pradesa or it could be some of the other brands what is it that makes you both from a customer maybe also for an employee point of view well um i think it's partly the um, all these different channels within the business, um, cross-fertilizing across all these channels is something that's very unique to Brindisa and in such a niche, you know, so it's not, it's not like a multinational business or, you know, or a very big business really. Um, but, you know, we, we source, we ship, we distribute, we retail, we cook, you know, ingredients from Spain. Now people, most maybe sensible business people would say we're going to do that, but we're going to do it across a global range of foods, rather than just from one country that people don't understand particularly well. I mean, I always want to make the impossible possible. So I just, you know, selling Spanish cheese in when I when my first cheese was in 1990, selling Spanish cheese in 1990 in London was probably the most ridiculously difficult thing to try and do but I was going to try and do it and and you know I did and it you know this is where we've come it's been a long road but you know we are one of Britain's most um, respected Spanish cheese businesses um, you know that category within Brindisa is very important so um, that's why I think it's quite unique about Brindisa in that it's most normal people wouldn't have chosen to do it quite like this <laughs> It means that we can kind of, you've got this cross-fertilization, if you like, across all these channels of something that is quite niche, really, yeah. Spanish food. I mean, it's, mm. but, but um, you, but so I think that's quite unique. But I think also that then what you're saying as well, Blind, is that, you know, you became the experts in this and it takes time to become the experts in, in a specific niche. But then when you own that, it's quite good for the business long term because you're building on that. Yeah, exactly. We're building on that. And the culture is very much around, you know, really nurturing that, really loving that subject, you know. Um, you know, the business can accommodate people who might not be in love with Spanish food. That's fine now that we're bigger. But right at the very beginning, it was kind of, do you want to get on this train? It's quite good fun. You know, yeah. we didn't really necessarily have the skills. We just learned on the way. Yeah. But um there was always a sense of like this is this is a really exciting journey of discovery there's a lot of fun to be had you know working out which are the right foods who to sell them to you know i mean in the early days it was that that's what it felt like like it was an adventure um and so i think that spirit still lives on in the business a bit and obviously i'm still really close to the business and 
one of my strongest desires has always been to share my experiences, where whatever they've been, or wherever they've been. You know, so we lived in West Africa. You know, we lived in the Far East. We lived. Um, you know, I went. You know, I went to um, lots of countries on my own. Part of my degree sent me to South America, and so on. And Spain is this. You know, this Brindisa ex exchange, if you like, between Spain and England is an extension of that you know, joy that I always found just seeing the rest of the world, meeting new people, eating their foods. Um, food brings people together and people speak through food, you know, so you learn so much just by, whether it's a long house in Borneo, eating some really salty river fish that's like bony and really unpleasant. You know, we've eaten it all, rice wine with sort of worms in the bottom. You know, as kids, we had all of those kind of strange foods and it was sort of part of, part of a kind of a very special upbringing that we had and so to me Brindisa is just you know a professional expression if you like mm -hmm. of something that we were brought up with um, and you, you've, you've expanded the business you already made that clear over the years the 35 years but just you said we are not a not a global player we are we are we are focusing we are expert in a niche but what is your approach to to growth because there's always in especially in the food industry we need to grow we need to have a hundred units we need to have so on so on so this needs to happen well growth has to happen obviously i mean i i don't resist growth it has to be i think one of your fellow podcasters called it elegant growth yeah um for me, it has to be elegant growth. It has to be growth, not just for um, vanity, if you like. Um, you know, big numbers have always rather frightened me. So I don't, you know, I don't say we've got to do this, we've got to do that. We've got to just be like the biggest. We To be the best is what I like. Um, but to be the biggest is not the most important thing. Um, and I would also... The way I've kind of managed it, if you like, within the business is to kind of put certain limitations in areas of the business where I feel if we were to build it too far in one direction, we'd get to a tipping point where the business would need to change and become something that I couldn't recognize personally. And then I wouldn't really want to be in charge of it. So it's identifying really with the growth pattern, if you like, where we where we're going to enjoy the growth and whether where the where it's going to be true to our values you know so that we're not so I, I put certain percentages on certain channels so if there's a channel that i think for example big supermarket supply you know discounted foods or whatever that's just not that's not our place but obviously you know people do ask us um then there are other categories where we would also potentially go like fresh fish or fresh fruit and vegetable. You know, Spain's got amazing fish, and amazing vegetables. But if we were to go in that direction, you know, and again, we get asked, but we just have to be really clear about which growth is healthy growth for us. And it can be growth in quality, not just quantity. Mm. Uh, it's interesting. It almost seemed like you need to create these stop doing list or KPIs yes. of the, the business. stop doing list, yeah. yes. Yes, um, absolutely. And uh, and I think it's very interesting that you say that you're. It's like not just something you put in a spreadsheet. It's also uh, an intuitive feel that you have what can break the business. 
yeah. in the wrong direction or what you yeah. would feel was the wrong direction from, from the purpose. Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, but what does that do again? You know, that would really, I guess, normally when I talk with people that, you know, growth has an impact on about how you think your business in general and the philosophy behind it and how you do things. What did that mean for the way you think, you know, your, your leadership philosophy across the business? and because I know you, you know, Ari introduced you and said that would be a really interesting conversation because we talked about that in the US and yeah. he said you would represent similar kind of approach as Singerman's here in, in, in the UK. What, what, what kind of approach have you taken there? Well, um, I haven't sort of like written it down or formulated it in any kind of, mm. you know, it's just sort of, yeah, I like you used the word instinctive just now. I am, yeah. you know, maybe to my detriment in certain areas, I am very instinctive um, and I don't always look at the numbers and so on. But so in terms of leadership philosophy, um, you know, I really truly believe you have to be yourself. You have to be able to be yourself in all the circumstances that you find yourself in, in the business. And so I'm a very natural sort of, uh, I have a very natural manner with people. We have open door, you know, approach in the business. Um, when I, in the very early years, I didn't believe in hierarchy. I mean, there had to be a little bit because people had to be in charge of things. But um, when we had rewards or gain share or bonus, it was the same for everybody, whatever position they were in the business. Um, so I've been, you know, that's a sort of just be fair and be yourself and unpretentious was is, is a very key thing for me. Um, courage, I think, is another really big one for me because when I look back at what the, the things that I've done, I think, my God, how on earth, I mean, like, what was I thinking? You know, whether it was, you know, asking the milkman if he could, the local milkman, whether he could store the cheese that I'd imported from Spain because I had nowhere else to put it, to, and just stopping him in the street kind of thing, to, um, you know, setting up a restaurant when I had no idea how to run a restaurant, you know, um, I just pitched for the site. I was very convincing that I knew what I was doing. I, I mean, good ingredients make good tapas. You know, what's there to argue about? But of course, I didn't know how to do that conversion. But, you know, I took the site anyway. It was then, well, I've got to find some people. So then I found the team, you know. Um, so courage, I think, does get you quite a long way. Um, and so, you know, I still believe in, you know, in courage, you know, not just not being frightened to, to, to make change or to be disruptive. Um, integrity, loyalty, I think are really important, I think, but in, in a business like ours, after so many years, you know, in the first few years when people left the business or were worried that their future wasn't going to be satisfied within, you know, because, because of me or whatever. Um, I've, you know, I found that really distressing because I get quite emotional and I just, you know, sort of you feel everything and that makes you less able to think. And so as time's gone on, we obviously set up HR departments, an HR department in, the, in both businesses. And that was the most amazing thing to do because at the, in the early days, you get so close to people because you love your colleagues. They're your friends, they're your family. You know, you yeah. don't want people to be dissatisfied or unhappy um, but you haven't got all the money in the world to pay them either because you're just a new business so I've learned over time that you know loyalty 
and integrity and friendship, all in the, in the business context, are really important, but they stu- do still need to be professional, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because it's, um, that's a hard balance. Yeah. Um, when you start out, you don't really understand how important having a little bit of distance from people because you, you want to take it all on. With the same joy, you might want to find the foods. You also want to help everybody. <laughs> and then again, it's the, the passion that comes out there. You know, I've been, been there myself as well where, you know, the, there's no fine lines between what's, you know, job and, and it's, it's the family thing. And yeah, then, And then absolutely. suddenly it grows and then... Yeah. Some of them leave you for it could be your fault. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. And you spend so much time on, you know, processing that. And yeah. it, it, it's not it's not helping you or the people that stayed. No, exactly. <laughs> and also you remember in that process that, you know, okay, I'm the one that sort of started this yeah. and I'm in I'm the bigger loser or winner, whichever way it goes. Yeah. But, you know, these guys are just you know, it's a job and they're really happy to be on the train with you. But yeah. You know, um, you know they've got other things to think about. They've got they want to be able to pay their rent. They want to be able to bring up a family. They want to do go on holiday. So you've got to start making the business into a really viable option for everybody yeah. as well. So anyway, that sort of um, I suppose integrity in terms of your duty to the staff to provide an environment that is appropriate. You know, so people can make a living and you know be comfortable is really important. But at the beginning, it, we were, it was all a bit of sort of sacrifice and we love it, let's just do it. It doesn't matter yeah. whether we make any money or not. Or, um, but over the years, that, so, so that to me is now really important. Um, and recognition, both ways. I mean, recognition to all the amazing people I work with, you know, and you have to do it more and more through your management structure. Um, and then for people within the business you know, not just myself, but other people getting recognised as, you know, an expert in this, or we get a prize for certain products. That sort of external recognition is also really gratifying um, because, you know, we all work really hard to make things happen. And then if, you know, um, I've got an award for, you know, hard work for with Spanish cheese this year. And that was really, really nice because we've worked as a business sacrificed a lot to make a lot to make um, to put Spanish cheese on the map um, so recognition you know and it filters both ways if you are able to recognize people's skills and pat them on the back and hopefully pay rewards now and again when the business is done well enough that's just really 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 important you mentioned something just before around hierarchy that you, in the beginning you were much into there should be almost no hierarchy and then you, you put a bit of structure in, in place and there's this whole movement in the moment going from the, I call it the Christmas tree, the top down oh, yeah. organization to the, the bottom up where you involve your people in the business and you can do that in different ways and incentivize structures or in decision making structures and i don't know if you ever read the book and you might have because we know ari both of us the great uh, the great game of business in principle yeah. where they turn around this manufacturing business that's you know totally in the rut to suddenly become very profitable business by ch- removing hierarchy in principle, yeah, yeah, yeah. involving people in the business where are you now in like 35 years down the line what kind of approach do we have to the structure of the business? Well, we have structure because, you know, more than 
<coughs> and we do at the very beginning, obviously, because we're now many more people. So it's a bit like we're, you know, we're like 120 people in Brindisa. Mm. In the restaurants, we're approaching probably 200 people, and it's very difficult to manage. Um, and in Barcelona, we have another half a dozen people, which is sort of how Brindisa was at the very beginning. Mm. Um, so we need, we do need structure. And I think people often feel safer if there is a structure because they know what's expected of them. And, um, but you've got to manage that structure. And you've also, so you need the sort of the, the leaders or the managers to really be able to um, lead their teams well. Um, and it really needs to be more in, as more inclusive than maybe traditional businesses. So the staff need to be um, included and consulted in decision making and development. And I think you'll find, you always see where the rising stars are or the people who are really engaged. One of the things that we did was open book finance. Yeah. So um, I did take staff over to Zingerman's mm. um, quite a long time ago now, and I'd love to refresh everybody with it. But open book finance, which sort of links in with the book you mentioned, yeah. um, The Game of Business, yeah. um, I think is a really, really, really inspiring technique for all sorts of businesses. And we ran it within Brindisa for quite a while. And it's just gone a little bit, you know, like some of these things can, it gets a bit stale. Um, it's been COVID and we've had Brexit. We've all had all sorts of things that just have thrown us all into sort of disarray. And we've got like really high priorities to think about. Yeah. And we haven't really been able to put it back into the business for a few years. But I think that system is a great way of breaking down the hierarchy because you still need it, but you don't necessarily need to behave like you might do in a traditional Christmas tree, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean, structure. Yeah. Um, you can still be inclusive, consultative, you know, generous, you know, all the things that employees, employers and managers should be anyway, but you can make sure that there's some other systems in place to make sure that people have their voice, people need their voice in your business. Yeah, and the open book management you talk about uh, there is also about, you know, sharing the numbers. This is how the business are doing. This is the results because there's often what I've learned before I even learned about the term open book management. You know, there was always people thought it was going much better than it was actually was. And you're sitting in the, as the top tree or part of the business and you said, look, yeah, well, how do we tell, how do we explain that to them that, you know, maybe it's not always good and we always save the business in the last three months of the year up to Christmas. That's that's how the business model works. And lots of people thought we were making lots of money all the time. What was the, when you did open book management, because I think that's really interesting technique compared to the challenges that's coming up ahead, by which we, if we have to be really agile in food and move fast, that people knows where you make money and lose money in principle. What was your learning when you were doing that? And you say you want to reinforce that and put it back into the business. Well, I think the, um, I think it's, it's just all those extra bits that people, I mean, people see the top line yeah. and they think, hey, this is great. Um, but, you know, how many people really focus on maybe the wastage? Maybe they just feel that's someone else's problem. Someone else can pay for that. Oh, we've, you know, we've got to waste two pallets of something. Um, but I've made the sales, so it's not really 
my problem. Um, or there are other costs to bringing in a new product that you know uh, isn't costed properly in terms of marketing it and launching it. And so nobody spends any money on marketing or launching it and therefore it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> and then you kind of wasted a whole lot of effort from the buyers to the logistics team yeah. and everything. But so with open book finance, you bring all of that out um, and it allows people to understand the hidden costs and the complexity really in a business to make something actually work. And, um, and I think that's where the system was really, really good. But you do need to be asking good questions, like all of these things. You have to be asking the right questions because yeah. you can just get into a system of just doing doing a, a huddle, if you yeah. like, with a, with a DOR board. And, you know, you just kind of go through the motions. But, you know, you really need to interrogate the information even if you've got the system, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah, because then the the system can become the the worst enemy of itself because Absolutely. it's easy. Now then we've done that and we can tick it off. Yeah. But really you didn't come to the root cause of either the the cost, the wastes that's going up or the yeah. sales that didn't come in on these days and um so yeah, so so I I agree. I think really that thing also when you start sharing people the complexity that's also when one of the next thing I wanted to talk with you about. You really can start grow and develop people and make them better business yes. people uh, when they move on because yes. a lot of people you know I work through my career I often start to when I get them in from somewhere or maybe to get in very early in their career that's definitely my experience first I need to learn them how work how work works yeah. and how to be productive at work and efficient and then I start with the P&L and then I find out lots of people don't know they just know a top line sales yeah. And yeah, profit exactly but all the yeah. complexity as you're saying that's going yeah. on i mean i must say with the restaurant business which is a much more immediate business than say the warehouse the mm. warehouse is complex because we have lots of different categories and we have lots of different channels and so understanding how that comes out what the what margin comes out in the wash is more complex than it is for the restaurant business because you know you you're doing one thing which is you know supplying amazing dishes yeah. to customers who pay on the nail. Um, so you haven't got credit issues. It's just getting that balance right. And um, my finance director and operations and partner um, director in the restaurants, Ratnesh Bagdai, is absolutely brilliant at bringing those numbers together because they're at hand every week. Mm. So the staff see that. We have a daily report from every site of you know, the sort of, um, you know, what the, the activity of the day, the staff cost, they're watching, the staff are trained in that in that business to watch mm. it every day because it is more, it's more controllable, it's more visible. Yeah. Um, and the teams, the managers and the, the um, head chefs are all really versed in what they need to do to make the business, make their site stay profitable and function really really well and that's really part to partly from um the input from Ratnesh site by site and his direct his operations team communicating to to um to all the leaders in the business but with the restaurants it's a bit easier than the, the wholesale business 
Yeah, because you also have the complex thing about you have different business models going on here. So yeah. That, and, and that's again, but uh, it's interesting you mentioned open book management. Then, then when we are the subject about, you know, what is your approach? Because you have these different businesses. How do you grow and develop people? Because, you know, lots of people are trying to find the way to retain people in the moment. It all comes back to we need to train them more. We need to develop them more. We need to give them transferable skills and then they stay with us. What, what has your approach been through the years? and trying to find your way around this? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. But we do have really good retention in all the businesses, in um, the retail, the restaurant, the restaurant group, and, um, and the warehouse. I mean, people do enjoy working at Brindisa, and each of the branches has a slightly different approach. So obviously the restaurants, um, I think the I would say the operations team empower the staff by sharing this information really actively, you know, daily, weekly, and then they work the budgets out together, and they're really, they're really close to the numbers. Um, and I think, and we pay them a fair, um, a fair salary, and the terms are good, and people get paid overtime. There are all sorts of, you know, in the in the hospitality business, there's all sorts of different ways of paying people, but. Um, we've chosen one particular route that works quite well well for the staff so um, you know that that works and the trunk goes back to the staff so there's you know there's obviously monetary benefits in the restaurants but if they're in control of the numbers that really helps retain them Um, and I have I I think that the restaurants it would be fair to say that the connection with Brindisa and the food and the fact that we've got the food going right back to Spain and we're in, we're all in this decision-making process together. Also gives them um, what I would call, you know, a great privilege really to be working with great ingredients because you could be working in a restaurant group where the ingredient might not be quite so um, special. So that helps um, the team behind the behind the stoves sort of really get into the menu and enjoy using these ingredients. In the wholesale business, um, it's there's so many different areas of that of that business. Obviously, you've got operations, you've got sales. I mean, we do a lot of training, um, outside training, for management skills and for tasting skills. We've got um, one of my longest-standing colleagues called James Robinson, who's been in the business for a very long time, is now the training manager, and he does all the sort of he's the food guru, if you like. Um, and so he brings in all the new when the new recruits come in. He he's he's just brilliant. Um, at communicating with them about the food. Um, my husband's now running the cheese program and he's really, really, you know, the cheese guru. So he is now beginning all those training sessions now post-COVID again. So there's training. Um, we obviously share training with the restaurants as well. So we go out with, uh, from the warehouse to the restaurants to train the, t- the people there. And they really like that. And now that COVID is, you know, we're in this new phase where we've got more freedom. Um, we want to bring the restaurant staff down to the, the cheese rooms, our, our cheese uh, maturing rooms, to see the warehouse in action and begin that exchange that we used to do that is really the cross-fertilization, you know what I mean, of the yeah. two sides is really interesting. And the other thing that we did do before COVID came about was we always did two trips a year to Spain. I mean, we do lots of trips to Spain, but one particular trip was a non-hierarchical trip. You didn't have to be a buyer or a manager. It was just sort of everybody and anybody who 
worked in the business and we sort of would I'd want four from the restaurant business and four from the distribution business uh, from the distribution business and they'd have to all be from separate departments but not necessarily be the top of their department and they would go out and they'd stay at my brother's farmhouse which is in Catalonia and they'd have three days there and they'd go and visit suppliers together they would meet each other from both sides of the business and it would just be kind of a jolly if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. in that there was no agenda. They didn't have to come back and sort of fill in, you know, do 100, you know, a, a, an exam on Spanish food or anything like that. It was just to connect and to be in Spain. Yeah. And they really enjoyed that. And my brother and his wife were great hosts. And some of them slept in the yurt and some of them had to sleep in the attic and some of them sleep in the bedroom. You know, it was sort of, and there was a swimming pool, you know. Yeah. It's just fun. And that was a really um, nice way to you know, connect people to, to Spain. Because we're very multicultural in Brindisi, so not everybody's from Spain or England. I love you. Again, lots of the things you talk about in, in your training as well. There's also that, that this love for food and Spanish food, and you come back to the, the purpose and how you can actually train them in food and they can get a connection with the food and yet taking them there so they really understand where does this actually come from I serve in the restaurant in London or put in a box to a client yeah um i really 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 like that um if you you know for everyone the last couple of years has been madness and, yeah and especially in, in in hospitality and food has been and that's still a lot of head but what has been like you know the biggest change for 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 the group what is like you know besides you know you had to go to lockdown and opening and close we've been all through all that but like has there been some kind of change within the organization you've seen that's really manifested now that you think things are getting a bit back into normal or a new normal or whatever we call this <laughs> period we're in now yeah well um i think there's um a huge feeling of um well i think First of all, I think people have been are very tired, mm. <laughs> really, really yeah. tired. So, um, I mean, the teams have been amazing through COVID. I mean, the people have been absolutely in, unbelievable. In you know, we're sort of brothers in arms. We're all together in this. It's you know, they've had to take pay, drop in pay. They've had to work harder. Um, obviously, we're understaffed in almost every corner of the business. Um, but they're still fighting on. Mm. So, you know, they're amazing teams in the crisis and they will be amazing teams out of crisis. And I think, um, you know, that seeing that with your own eyes is amazing. Um, and that will carry us through because I think the next year is going to be really busy. And I think we have to find um, a way to sort of make sure that they don't get totally burnt out because I think the demand is going to you know rocket yeah and um, that's going to be quite um, a big thing for us to cope with in terms of other big changes if you like that have been um, important to the business um, on a more personal level is that um, about three years ago I appointed an MD in Brindisa and I've also got um, an FD MD at the the restaurant group, um, Ratnesh that I mentioned. So I've got Heath Blackford and Ratnesh Bagdai, and these two uh, gentlemen, can I call them, <laughs> have um, 
absolutely transformed my life in that they have taken on the business, they control the business, um, they watch it really closely. And um, we have set up in Brindisa Wholesale, we set up a, an external board that's very, very balanced. And we've got two externals on it, um, the directors. We've now got my husband who was never on the board before. Um, and for me personally, that's one of the biggest changes ever to have um, eight, nine individual, individuals across the two businesses because we've got three um, directors in the restaurant business as well um, has just made me I can sleep mm. I can rest I can think about the business I can enjoy the distance I have from the day to day and help think about things for the future and I can contribute in a way that you know when it's growing and it's all like all hands on deck and it's all sort of like rush 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 mm. do you know what I mean um, so that's been one of the biggest changes to have a very established and very competent very devoted team of key directors um, so when Brexit came and then Covid came um, we all worked together as we did with everybody else in the business but with these guys watching the key things I felt so much safer yeah, and I guess also not alone. Uh, no, and not alone. Yeah and, yeah, and and different thinking, looking at the problem, finding different solutions. That's probably better yeah. than when you don't, if you're just trying to yourself to to find the solution. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Brexit, COVID. Now, what do, you, in your opinion, is like the key challenges for you know hospitality, food as we go into. I'll be careful to use the word post-pandemic because I really don't know, but that's what no, people quite. call it. But uh, the new period, the new phase of all this. Well, I think for the restaurants, it's going to be staff, staffing up and skilling up for what's likely to be a very big summer. Um, that's probably the biggest issue for the restaurant group. Um, and at the same time, you know, in the wholesale business, you know, because obviously we sell to a lot of restaurants through the wholesale business. So we watch from a distance what's happening across the country, if you like. Mm. So we'll be watching everyone else having um, issues with their staffing. Um, for the wholesale business in terms of um, Brexit, you know, we've got higher costs all the time coming in. Um, the whole impact of Brexit who knows if it was by design, but it's been so staggered um, that maybe the full impact is just not really visible yet. Um, and, you know, maybe for the government that's been helpful because they haven't had all the big drama happen in one go. Hmm. Um, and we have had Brexit three or four times because of all the stop-start that was going on. So we've stocked up and then not needed to stock up three times over, which has been a cash flow issue that we've had to manage. Um, and then now things obviously are flowing, but we've now got new January, we've got documents, new documentation. Some suppliers didn't make it onto the lorry. In, in July, we're going to have more phytosanitary certificates that have got to be approved with each shipment. I mean, you know, it's going back in time. Yeah. in terms of um, efficiencies and it's going to be I think it will challenge the diversity of product that will be able to come into the country 
not just from us, but for, you know, for the rest of the world, you know, yeah. rest of Europe particularly. And the standards that we were working to, you know, a sort of a bit of a moving feast. So, mm. you know, um, we've had to, you know, we've got a lot more costs, basically. The, the red tape that we wanted to say goodbye to is there in greater quantities and greater costs. And so, you know, that, that's, that's what's happening. So diversity and cost, or, you know, a reduction in our diversity of range might be a consequence. You, you mentioned the, the, the staffing crisis there's for many right now, really a big focus on, especially we're sitting in London, where there's really a huge demand for, for people just to keep open. Some people have oh, to yeah, reduce absolutely. their opening days. And uh, what is um, what, what, what has been your way to, to manage that as you came back and switched on the light and opened the doors again. How did you manage that and how are you moving with that, right? attracting more people or the right people? I guess it's not just people, you want the right people. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, initially we reduced the working week mm. so that the people who, obviously last year we had to make, you know, at the beginning of the lockdown, the first lockdown and so on, there were obviously redundancies and we had to, you know, lose people which was heartbreaking um then we worked on a smaller team during the eat out help out phase um leading up to christmas and we shortened the hours um and again we've got a shorter week in some of the restaurants and we haven't fully opened if we haven't fully opened mm. um So that's the way we've managed it. We have got some good people coming into the business now in terms of looking, you know, um, looking for work with us, to work with us. Um, I think one of our benefits is that business hasn't really changed. We haven't suddenly kind of sold out to anybody. I mean, we're still a privately owned company, so people are still working. None of the ethics have changed. None of the sort of values have changed. The aim of the business the restaurant business and Brindisa is to run a healthy happy profitable enjoyable business you know with excellent food at the forefront so that hasn't changed in covid we can still do that we've we've come through on both sides um in a way that you know we've sustained it we've sustained the the period um of covid What what has been you know if you take you as the the founder and you've been on a journey where you have put yourself in a new position over the last three years you just talked about what has been your most significant learning because we all everybody takes something out of this thing COVID and what what has that been for you? Well, I I kind of touched on it just now. It's um. It's just the utter joy of working with people that you can trust. Mm. I mean, it's just, it is the most um, amazing thing in the world, really, to feel that, because the business has got to a size that's, you know, I mean, I couldn't cope with running Brindisa on my own. And so um, watching just, yeah, just working with people that you trust is, you know, um, something that is really, really the best gift, really. So, and I think COVID has proven that because, um, you know, people have had to come together in really dire circumstances to, you know, manage their own personal challenges with family and friends and all sorts of things going on, but also like just work so 
hard and devote so much energy and time to the business. Um, so all across the structure, all the teams have just put in so much and that we've lost some people on the way, obviously in the restaurants because they had to close. But um, those who are with us and those who are in key positions who have led their teams well, I mean, you know, I trust all of them. And to me, COVID has made that trust even deeper, if you like, than it was before. So, you know, um, that's one of my biggest learnings, the joy of trust. I, I really like that because it's like also, we all know in, in the hardest time, no matter if it's in business and life, the people that stands with you yeah. are the people that you can trust whatever yeah. mountains you're crawling. Yeah. Because you never know the direction. No. But you, if you have the right people around you, you will find a way. We'll find a way. And together. we're in it together. And, you know, that feeling of sort of brothers in arms or whatever you want to call it, you know, where we're going to do the best by each other all the way through. Talking about um, people uh, and having the right people around you, but who has been most influential to you? The, the top three people has been most influential to you in on this amazing entrepreneurial journey you've been on? Well, it's... Oh, it's such a difficult, I find it quite a difficult question because yeah. obviously Brindisa's had so many different phases. So yeah. um, when I th when you ask me that question, I go right back to the very beginning. Obviously, there are people right now who are key partners and, you know, who inspire me every day. Um, but right at the very beginning, you know, the people who sort of, I suppose, inspired me to do what I wanted to do, if you know what I mean. Um, one is, was Deborah Madison. Now mm -hmm. she's a, a chef in San Francisco. She, you know, she, I think she's retired and lives in Santa Fe and I've uh, have stayed with her once um, way back. But one of the, I met her on a symposium when, in Spain um, with, um, it was Deborah Madison, Colin Spencer, who's um, a great writer, and Tim Lang, who's Professor of Food Policy um, at the City of London. And um, Deborah was just incredible because she, you know, I hadn't really appreciated how, incre how incredible vegetarian food could be. She was so excited about beans. She has a book that I have used every day of my life since I met her, The Greens Cookbook. And she also taught me that sort of dream of, you know, growing, growing food and putting it in a restaurant. You can, you can get food from field to fork. And so controlling that journey in Brindisa in a way that we do now, um, I'd never really heard of that before. So Deborah kind of planted that seed for me to kind of follow that path in some way. And Tim Lang, who's, you know, incredibly, um, I could listen to Tim all day, every day of my life. He's so brilliant on everything to do with food, from the politics to, you know, the sociological impact of whatever. And I mean, just like, he's just got so much knowledge. Um, he just said to me, you know, at that time, just stick in your niche, Monica, just stay in your niche. Don't, just don't leave it, stay there. Specialize because the world's big and it's gonna get bigger. So just stay in your place. And those were two very important early um, influences, if you like. And um, and the other one, I have to go back to that circle of friends of Ari Randolph and Anita. Mm. So Anita, who founded Monmouth Coffee, Randolph Hodgson, who founded Neil's Yard Dairy, 
and who then introduced me to Ari. And then I saw Ari's business. And I just, you know, that circle of friends, um, it's just so productive and so positive and so transparent. And so there's so much energy in their exchange that um, I was just overwhelmed by that. And it's sort of, um, you know, the way Brindisa not I can't we can't emulate Zingerman's but we've got these interconnected channels if you like a little mm. bit like Zingerman's have their community of businesses so yeah. it's it's the sort of connectivity that I really enjoyed and it took if I don't know if in the early chapter in the book I explain about my grandpa my opa in Malawi and how he taught the Malawians how to grow rice and then he set up a um, he taught them how to grow it and then he built a mill so they could mill it and then he built a little department store in the middle of um, the countryside so people could get their rice but they could also get their sardines and their Mm. needles and their cloth and so you know it's just I suppose that I don't know that crossing over of channels and you know I just trading if you like facilitating um, service and trade um, which Zingerman's does and you know, obviously in Michigan. And um, and I just thought Anita and Randolph's two businesses were so different yet so aligned in their thinking and their approach to business. So they, they've been, and they very, very kindly welcomed me to their home way back in the early years when I wanted to sort of say, I don't know what to do about this. What should I do about this? You know, they were very, very helpful and very generous. Yeah, and a very counterintuitive way of thinking business in still in the world we live in today where it will be more relevant i think in the years to come um, and i said it many times people uh, they haven't you know looked into these businesses a lot of learn to learn for them and, and yours as well because you you you've been tapping into yeah the way they do yeah. things as well i mean family i mean family are obviously unbelievably important and i do in the sort of introduction of my book i mentioned family quite a lot because my opa was inspirational and my mm. other granddad was inspirational too. But, but you know, family has just been an absolute rock for me all the way through. So my parents' values are, you know, integrity, just, you know, being very just. My dad was in personnel, so he's always been about, you know, people. People management is key. You know, my mum's family had this sort of great journey from Germany to Africa and whatever. So that, you know... They, they set up farms in lots of different places and worked with, you know, Turks and Greeks and Cyprus and Malawians and Indian families and people, communities in Malawi. So, you know, that sort of people of the world strength, if you like, uh, that has absolutely been, it, it's just part of my DNA. I mean, the world is our home. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and we're just guests on it yeah. sometimes we have to remember yeah. as well yeah. um, how do you keep on showing up every day and mm-hmm. playing the best game being pro I call it as well yeah no it's quite it's a fun way to to say it actually being pro um, well one of the things I one of the practical things I've done is I you know a few years ago I'd started started to only to diary a short week because the week always gets longer yeah. So if you plan to work for five days of the week, yeah. you will end up working for seven or yeah. more. Um, so I plan three days and try to contain it. It never works, but at least I'm starting from a point where I can manage it without... Otherwise, I flap. And then I'm 
I get useless. You know, so that's a way of staying pro for me um, because I can I do overcommit and I do tend to say yes to pretty much everything. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I've got better at looking after myself. So, you know, I thought being busy and rushing to work and, you know, eating, drinking, seeing people, you know, all the time was was fine. I think when I was younger it was fine, but now it's not. <laughs> so I do, you know, I do a lot more exercise, sort of structured exercise more. So I, I've started running a bit, I'm doing Pilates, I do quite a lot of that, that kind of thing. I've got two dogs, so I walk them all every day and I get a bit of space doing that. Um, and um, ah, one of the other things that changed one of my um, colleagues years ago sort of said you know Monica I think you should get a PA you know um, oh, two things actually he said two things he said one you need a car that works and you need a PA because <laughs> you're not going to get very far you know with this growing business if you don't have both of those things so I have had you know an assistant for you know how long now maybe eight years or so but obviously they you know they've become totally invaluable all the way they started out being brilliant and they're still brilliant so yeah. that really helps take the you know the panic if you like out of my sort of voice sometimes I can yeah. <laughs> accelerate at a pace that I can't keep up with yeah. so that's that's brilliant for me yeah, um, and I've been in dialogue with your your assistant Ava, and she's been brilliant. You know, she's incredible. Yeah, I would hire her. So. <laughs> yeah, you're not having her. Then. <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah, and um, and I I mean I don't know if staying this is staying pro or not really, but I have two incredible children, twenty three year old son and a twenty one year old daughter, and they centre me, and that's kind of yeah. like, staying pro or not. I don't know, but you know, obviously. You know, my husband and my two kids, family, my own family, um, they just centre me. Yeah. Um, which is brilliant. Yeah, and you need all these elements. You talk about how you manage things and time and so on, but you also need your base in a way to, yeah. to feel grounded, no matter yeah. how successful you are in business. Exactly. Um, what, uh, what top three advice would you give to follow leaders out there that's that's listening in here and think that Monica must have some golden tips to oh. what, what we should be doing to, 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 to move our businesses or make it better. What would your top three advice be? Well, I, you know, I, I, one of the, the first one I thought of, which is one I struggle with the most really is focus. Mm. Um, because, you know, there's so much lovely food out there, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, you have to focus. Um, and when we had a restructure when there was the recession in 2008, 2009, we had to restructure the team and we had to lose some really valuable people. And after that, I was sort of emotionally, absolutely sort of, you know, uh, exhausted. And you feel quite empty after a process like that. Mm. And I just remember thinking, I can't carry on with this business because I don't know what we're doing anymore. I don't know, I just don't know. Um, and so that's when I signed up to do the visioning course and I'd sent myself over to Michigan on my own and I did the visioning course at Ari's um, school and um, you know that helped me refocus and so guiding principles, mission, values, uh, visioning 
you know, all of those are tools to help you stay focused. You know, so if someone comes to me and says, let's have this bonkers product in the business, I'll just say no, you know, but you kind of, that focus is what you need to be able to um, keep going. Otherwise, you you will spread yourself too thin. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would say is remember you can say no. Yeah. Because I don't. <laughs> um, but I've learned to say no more and more. Yeah. And it's a really nice thing to say sometimes. And so I would just say to people, again, it's a bit like staying focused, but um, it's really fine to say no um to 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 opportunities or to um you know whatever it might be another product or another service from you know outside so um the other one was nurture your people and just love your people you need your people and they need you i mean it's a two-way street um and we all i mean whether it's me or whether it's them it's not me and them it's us we all need to feel trusted and relevant and valued and wanted mm. you know and um noticed yeah so um nurture your people is absolutely vital and you need the hr to structure it but you need lots of cuddly bits as well yeah. you know softer bits like you know at brindisa the warehouse anyway we do birthday cards for everybody everybody signs it you know if it's brindisa's anniversary i try and get you know a donut a really nice donut for everybody and those things those are little things but you know you i i have to do those things for myself and so we'll do it for everybody <laughs> and that's um i don't know yeah so i would say focus remember to say no and nurture your people would be my three things Apart from look at the numbers, which I'm really bad at doing. <laughs> well, that's also focus. <laughs> yeah. Numbers makes you focused. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, because, yeah, I totally agree with that. I really like the uh, the no thing because that's one of the hardest thing to do when even, you know, great opportunities comes up and actually say no in that moment. I, I have had like two years now of my, I call it stop doing instead. And I'm really still struggling where putting too much yeah. on the plate and then I find out wow yeah. now I'm three months into it and I'll, I committed to something where I can't really follow through on the, the standard I want to follow through on that's the thing and Absolutely. then it starts to as you come back to it starts to impact you as the yeah and then individual. it sort of Im implodes as a yeah. project and then it's like well you know told you so sort yeah. of thing I mean I'm not I'm not saying I'm the best at these but you're practicing <laughs> right yeah, and that's that's as important as well. Um, yeah. Is there any way that you know, if you just a quick, a quick advice in the end here, um, anywhere a way of saying no in a good way? Have you learned to say no in a good way? Because often people feel that that thing as saying no in a good way as hard. I think it's important to validate to validate the person's offer. Yeah. And say that's a great idea, or that's very generous of you to think of us needing that. But right now, it's not the right time. Or so I think you need to validate the offer, yeah. and you know, be graceful in that. You know, even if it's a completely inappropriate offer, you should still be polite. Yeah. And um, and sort of validate it and be appreciative of it and say it just doesn't suit us yeah. as a business because we're, whatever, going in a different direction or whatever it is. Good, good, Monica. That's a really good uh, advice. I always ask this in the end. What is the, the one question 
uh, you would have liked me to ask you, but I didn't. And what would you have answered? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, well, I, w I would say the question um, I would have liked to have been, one of the ones I would have liked to have been asked would have been, why are small producers so important to Brindisa? Yeah. Or artisan producers? Um, and because that is sort of where we started out and mm. that's our heritage and um, and the reasons why they are important to us is that um, because it sort of goes against the grain to want to sell less <laughs> yeah you know but um, these producers um, many of them are in rural communities in Spain and Spain's a big country and they're very remote and the fact that they produce something that we can find a market for sustains livelihoods in in that community which is important you know migration to the city happens everywhere but if we can minimize some of it that would be good um, it also preserves breeds of animals or varieties of plants that um, we need to keep going we need to keep our our library of you know varietals going whether it's rice or whether it's beans or whether it's um peppers or whatever it might be um those producers are not highly mechanized so the craft and the skill that the people have that make these products is you know is really high level skill you know um they do it by hand whether it's picking saffron by hand and then um you know, it's all, they, they all sit in a, you know, round a table, the mountain of crocuses, they hacer la monda, what it's called, which is take the stamen out of the flower. And then they chat as they do it. The ladies are brilliant at it. They've got stained fingers from doing it so many hours. But, you know, they exchange stories. It's community as well as skill. And it holds neighborhoods and communities together. So, I, I just think it just raises the quality of people's work, being able to work like that mm. in a less mechanised or totally unmechanised environment. And um, we need to keep that going for as long as possible um, and preserve these skills. So that's why, we, that's why we love those products. They're harder to sell than yeah. industrial products or commoditised products. Yeah, and it's, it's counterintuitive again that normally if you look at it as a business case, you think that's, that's a bad business idea but yeah. it doesn't have to be and, uh, yeah. and that was a great question I yeah. didn't yeah. ask you and a great well, answer <laughs> and the taste comes through you yeah, know if you're does. sensitive to taste and aroma and texture it's worth paying the price for an artisan product yeah um, where can people find out more about you the business online where, where can people go and look we'll put some some links in the show notes as well so people can find you guys um, well Either websites for Brindisa.com yeah. or BrindisaKitchens.com yeah. um, or even Perillo.com um, are all there. Um, and I, I can be found, e emails get forwarded to me s straight away. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I'm not particularly good at managing LinkedIn, but I'm there. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as Brindisa Monica. Um, I'm very happy to get direct messages from Instagram. Um, and Eva, yeah, you know, and Eva, yeah, <laughs> Eva Andres is is um, very good at helping um, put people in touch with me as well. Good, good, good. 
Thank you so much, uh, Monica. That's been an absolutely incredible uh, conversation. And thank you for sharing all these things about your journey, but also the business and how you do things. Yeah, well, thank you so much. It was great. We could have, I could have talked for hours, actually. <laughs> but, um, you know, thank you very much indeed. It was very nice of you to invite me. Thank you so much, Monica, for sharing your journey and learnings, as well as how you build an organization people love and support. I would recommend you now to ask yourself, how can I build an organizational culture that people love and support? To get further inspiration on how to improve your organizational culture, please tune in to episode number 56, Heartfelt Hospitality, with Nina Jeffra Stevenson, Chief Cultural Officer at Point A Hotels. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels. A big thank you to Be Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help the industry thrive, not just survive. Check them out at bisimply.com or via the social at bisimply or bisimplyhq. You can also email them directly on advice at bisimply.com. A big thank you to Fina Charlton, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to our newsletter and more Maverick insights at hospitalitymavericks.com. And don't worry, if you didn't get all of this, there will be links in the show notes. I'm Michael Tingser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick. <laughs>